Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. What is the most important resource a person can buy if he or she wants to have a really good grasp of the book of Malachi? Well, at the risk of sounding trite, let me say that the answer is clear. The Bible. The Bible itself is the best tool a person can use in understanding the message of Malachi. Now, don't get me wrong. I have spent a good amount of money buying secondary sources, and there's still a big need for the scholarly arm of the body of Christ to spend its time writing and researching and making commentaries. And yet, as important as that pursuit is, and as much as I buy into it, uh, the most important resource has to be the Bible itself. Uh, The validity of any proposed reading, of any text really, can ultimately be tested by the sense it makes of its literary context. In our case, that's the Bible. Now, this goes in two directions. First, we can think of the place of Malachi within the biblical canon. We need to see it in its place in the progress of Revelation and how it fits in with all the other books of the Bible. And now, of course, we want to leave room for the diversity that's there within the biblical witness. So we don't want to straightjacket all the authors of Scripture into saying the exact same thing. But any reading that takes Malachi 1.1 seriously, that this is a revelation from God, from Yahweh himself, will ultimately want to situate it in continuity with the rest of Scripture. The other direction of literary context goes inward. Any proposed interpretation must make sense of the overall thought flow of the book in which it's found. So for those of you who are following along in our series of exegetical talks through the book of Malachi, let me encourage you to find some time and just simply read through all of Malachi. Yes, that's right, the whole book, in just one sitting. Because, you know, even if you read it slowly, it should only take you about like 10 or 15 minutes. So if you've done that then this episode should kind of be like a review of what you've already read. But it's important for us to see it all from a bird's eye view. Now, there's a long-standing tradition in Malachi commentaries to break up the book into six disputation oracles. Malachi is fond of this literary device in which he anticipates a question or an attitude of his audience and then reports God's response. So, for example, right away in chapter 1, verse 2, You say, how have you loved us? And then the voice of God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother? And so on. Or you could look at 1.6. How have we despised your name? And then God answers, by offering polluted food on my altar. Now the standard breakdown of Malachi uses this literary device to break apart Malachi as follows. The first disputation oracle is in 1, 2 to 5. That talks about God's love and his hatred for the Edomites. Disputation 2 is in 1.6 all the way through 2.9, that's the biggest one, discussing the failure of the priests. Disputation 3 is from 2.10 to verse 16, and that concerns divorce. The fourth is from 2.7 to 3.5 or maybe 3.6, and it's about the coming messenger or messengers who will judge the wicked. A disputation 5 is in 3.6 or 3.7 and goes through verse 12, and that centers on tithing. And then the last one is disputation number six, which is from 3.13 to 4.3, which again is about the coming judgment. And then it's kind of standard fare and commentaries to talk about four, four to six as appendices. These are final admonitions, like an epilogue, challenging the people to obey the law and look for the prophet Elijah. 
Now this breakdown does get at certain discrete units within the text, though there are some significant problems. First, this breakdown, which I just described, doesn't work out so that way all of these question and answers, these disputation oracles are included. All of the disputation oracles do not introduce a new section. If there were only six and they corresponded with this breakdown, that would be really nice, but that's not the way it actually works out. There are actually 13 question and answer formats, not six. Also, one of the biggest problems is that the above description doesn't really give a cohesive overall sense of what Malachi ultimately is entirely about. What we want is a way of explaining how all of these sections fit together. So while the disputation oracle scheme is good as far as it goes, ultimately it's more helpful to think about the central theme of the book of Malachi, which I and many others would argue is covenant. A covenant is a solemn contract between individuals, sometimes between a greater authority, like a king, and those under him, like a conquered people. God has entered into a covenant with Israel on several occasions uh, with several different people groups for different purposes. But ultimately, God expects his people to show faithfulness to their covenant obligations, that is, their side of the bargain. And he promises that he will be faithful to do everything that he has promised. The people's faithfulness will impact whether they receive blessings or curses. And yet, for all the contingency we find in some of the biblical covenants, there's always a sense of unconditional certainty that God can ultimately be relied upon. And so some of the covenants are unconditional and absolutely will come to pass no matter what. God will bless the seed of Abraham, for example, and there's just no stopping him. He will do this no matter what. The theme of covenant comes up over and over again in the book of Malachi as its central uniting theme that ties together all of the sections which we just went through. So let's proceed through them piece by piece. The first section in 1, 2 to 5 refers to the covenant God made with Israel over against Edom in choosing Israel to carry on the seed promise from Abraham. The very last section, the appendices mentioned earlier, ends the book of Malachi by referencing Moses, whom God used to establish his covenant at Sinai, and Elijah, who sought to bring the people back to their covenant loyalty. And between these covenant references in 1, 2 to 6 and 4, 4 to 6, we have the same theme of covenant through and through. Of the traditional six disputation oracles mentioned earlier, uh, numbers one, four, and six all talk about God's commitment to save Israel and yet punish those who do not keep their end of the bargain. The other half, numbers two, three, and five, are respectively accusations concerning priesthood, so we could think of the Levitical covenant, uh, accusations regarding divorce, so we could think about the marital covenant, and accusations regarding tithing, and here we're particularly to think of the Deuteronomic covenant. So covenant is a big idea in Malachi and unites the different parts into an integrated whole. This provides a much needed balance when it comes to understanding God's promises. On the one hand, Israel needs to rest assured that God's program will not go off course, even despite things seemingly being the opposite with their subjugation to the Persian Empire, and it seems like it's taking just forever for these promises to happen. No, God loves Israel, and she is not headed to annihilation or to meaninglessness. His promises are true and will certainly come to pass. But on the other hand, not only is there an element of comfort, but all throughout Malachi, there's a strong element of fear. 
yes, God's going to be faithful to his covenant, but that means that those who are not faithful to him can count on being destroyed from among his people. In 1, 2-6, Malachi shows God's faithful love to Israel by pointing to the destruction of Edom. As depressed as the inhabitants of Yehud may have been at this time, things were not as bad as they could be. And the only one they have to thank for their continued existence as a nation is their faithful covenant-keeping God. If God had given up on them, they would have gone the way of Edom and have been wiped off the map. Furthermore, this section's emphasis on judgment anticipates the later scheme that God is never fooled into blessing those who were unfaithful. At the next major section, 1-6 to 2-9, which is the biggest one in all of Malachi, turns its gun, so to speak, on the priesthood. They had been negligent in their responsibilities, half-heartedly giving their second best to God, and God simply will not stand for it. These priests will be taken away along with the dung of their offerings. And yet, this is not the end of the Levitical priesthood. 2-4 talks about God acting so, quote, that my covenant with Levi might stand, end quote. Again, God keeps his promises, but punishes those who do not keep their end of the bargain. In the next unit, 210 to 16, Malachi zooms out and considers the people as a whole, and another covenant failure is addressed. People leaving their wives of their youth to marry idolatrous women. Again, the marriage covenant. So in the next unit, 217 to 36, we take a break from bringing up specific sins of the Ahud community to remind the people of the principles of retribution and promise. Those who are in rebellion will be punished, but there's always going to be a remnant left, even though the wicked will be removed. And then in the next section, which talks about tithing, we have again the covenant from Deuteronomy. Malachi applies the stipulations of the Deuteronomic covenant, that if the people will give, like they're supposed to, and keep their end of the bargain, God will take care of the land, and so take care of them. It's again here that we have this indictment about tithing. Now, the location of this is significant. If Malachi had placed this problem first, we might think that the leaders are kind of off the hook, like the people aren't giving enough, so the priests can't do their job. But that's not how this whole thing is framed. The priests are blameworthy, and then so are the people. Commentators have often pointed out the importance of covenant for understanding Malachi. This helps us make sense of how the individual parts relate. But it's also helpful for thinking about how Malachi itself is a part of a whole. A scholar named Jonathan Gibson wrote his PhD dissertation, uh, or his thesis for Cambridge, entitled Covenant, Continuity, and Fidelity. Uh, And I'll pull from that several times throughout this series. Uh, He does a great job tracing this theme through Malachi, particularly in connection to its allusions to the rest of the Old Testament. Malachi often stops and points his readers back to the Old Testament to reinforce his message and apply its covenant framework. Other scholars have approached Malachi from a perspective called canonical criticism, which pays attention to the place of a text where it is within the biblical canon, the collection of the books of the Bible. Thinking about this covenant in Malachi is just so fascinating. It's in a collection called the Twelve, that is, the minor prophets starting with Hosea. So let's just, one observation. Hosea writes several centuries earlier, and in his context, Israel could just be Israel, that is, the northern ten tribes. Hosea famously describes Israel's relationship with God like that of a prostitute to her devoted husband. Right away, connections should start forming in our brain if you've gone through Malachi before. Malachi finishes 
the accusation of Hosea by continuing the discussion of marital covenant fidelity and how God still does, quote, love Israel, end quote, in, in contrast to his hatred of Esau. The implication then is that despite all the hills and valleys Israel has traversed since the Assyrian invasion in the 8th century BC and the resettlement of the land in Yehud in 4th century BC, the people still struggle with covenant faithfulness, and yet God will still send a messenger to restore the people so that there will be blessing and not a curse. The emphasis is on the continuing story of Israel, and that's why, as mentioned in our last episode, the relatively anachronistic term Israel is used in 1.1. Situating Malachi in an even wider canonical context is a little bit more challenging, but still there's a lot of fruit there. There's some indication that during the first century AD, the Hebrew Bible finished with what we call Second Chronicles. But in the Protestant canon, Malachi famously occurs at the end of the Old Testament. And of course, recall that the word testament means, drum roll please, covenant. So from this perspective, Malachi brings the revelation of the Old Covenant to a close. It ends in 4, 4 to 6 by pointing back to Moses, saying, remember those rules which were for all Israel. And yet it also points to the future, the coming of Elijah and his call to repentance, the next prophet in the biblical timeline, whom we know from our perspective to be John the Baptist, who prepares the way before the coming of God himself. So the book of Malachi is short, four chapters in the English, three in the Hebrew, since our 4, 1 to 6 corresponds to 3, 19 to 24. You can read it in about 10 to 15 minutes. And yet, the more that we read it through, the more we'll really understand its powerful message. But the most important book to read to understand Malachi is not only Malachi, but the whole book itself. It stands as the final warning in Old Testament revelation. The way that the Testament, the covenant works. God can be counted on to surely punish the wicked in his own timing but he can also be counted on to fulfill every single one of the covenant promises he has made in his own time. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.